Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of The Publisher Lab. I'm Tyler Bishop. Joined alongside me today is a slightly different take than what we have done in the past, and that's partially because my co-host, who I've had for almost a year now... Over a year now. Shelby Kang, the lovely voice that you hear right next to me, she is going to be taking a short break. So, Shelby, tell us tell us where you're going and, and why they may not hear you on the podcast for a couple months. Oh, yeah. So I am taking um, a couple months off, as you may or may not know if you're a normal listener. I've recently graduated college, and I'm going to go do some traveling for a little bit. But I will be back um, in September. So for the next couple of months, you'll be hearing some new voices. Um, Actually, today you'll be hearing a new voice um, because we have the newest member of our marketing team here. Yeah, so uh, join me in welcoming Alan Longstreet. So, Alan, you're going to be serving as guest producer here for the next couple months. Absolutely, I'm happy to be here, and I have some I have some big shoes to fill um, from what from what Tyler's told me. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think our listeners probably have grown used to hearing me say, "Alongside me today, Shelby Kang." It's kind of how I've kicked off the podcast. So I might call you Shelby every now and then, but. Uh, I think uh, one of the positive takeaways, if you're a regular listener and you're like, oh, no, Shelby, she's going to be gone. I don't want to listen anymore at all. Uh, <laughs> the good news is, A, you're coming back and you will be back on the show. And B, I think one of the, the things that we've done here recently is because of the growth of the show, we've discussed a lot about doing uh, more than just one podcast a week and maybe getting deeper into some of the topics that we bring onto the show. And so that may mean uh, having some um, new voices and new producers on to, to help us out with that. But um, yeah, I think one of the best things we can do is continue to listen to our audience. So if that's something that you want or there's specific things you like or don't like, um, I, can't, I can't make Shelby magically reappear for the next, uh, next handful of episodes, but... Um, Shelby, we, we'll miss you, but uh, we I'm sure everyone is looking forward to hearing your voice again whenever you get back. Yeah, definitely. And um, along with that, we'll have hopefully some new guests and some different topics um, and cover a broader range of things. But the first topic we have today um, is an article from What's New in Publishing about how much of Google's search traffic is left <laughs> to anybody but themselves. This is such a good one to have on here. We almost had to do it, right? Yes. So this is a new study from Rand Fishkin and also a marketing analytics firm, JumpShot. Um, and it shows that in Q1 of this year, Google's U.S. web search engine had over 150 billion searches. So nearly 49% of those searches were solved without a click, meaning the query was answered within the SERP. Um, 41.45% of searches were directed to non-Google-owned sites, so pretty much just everyone else in the web. Um, And that leaves about 6% of all searches, which resulted um, in being directed to Google-owned digital properties. So what this analysis is missing, however, is the percentage of searches that end in a click to Google-owned mobile apps. So that's still kind of in question. Um, But in the past three years, Google has been able to increase its click-through rate on paid search ads by 75%, and mobile also accounts for the majority of the zero-click and paid search growth. So mobile is where overall search volume is the highest. 
Um, but we've kind of talked about this in the past. Is it fair for publishers to be concerned about Google stealing traffic in its SERP? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, is it is it fair for publishers to be concerned? Yes, I, I think so. I, I would say that uh, it is definitely a business risk of being a digital publisher. Um, pretty much anyone operating this space has to, you know, do kind of a SWOT analysis on what they do and say, okay, what are my biggest risks? And Google is something that pretty much every publisher relies on to, to some extent. Um, there are exceptions, but uh, they're just such a behemoth in this space. Now, that said, uh, I look at this data almost as glass half full because if you look at the trends over time, um, it could definitely be worse. And in a lot of cases, things seem to be holding fairly consistent in a lot of respects. And um, you, I think uh, Rand, who, for those of you that may not be familiar, Rand actually was the founder of Moz. Uh, he no longer is, is, um, is associated with the, with the business, but he was the one that started that company. So he, he's got a really great reputation for producing some really great SEO uh, content and uh, research studies. And I think it's fair also to point out that JumpShot, uh, they basically are getting a lot of their data from Chrome extensions and other types of tools and things like that that are kind of secretly installed on a lot of devices that people use. So while I do think the data is probably fairly accurate, uh, Google probably, and they have said already, um, that their data shows something different, which what would you expect them to say? Because some of it isn't, doesn't make them look the best, specifically on mobile when you look at the number of no-click searches. Um, that being said, I think that if you're a digital publisher, there are a couple things that are worth taking into account here, which real quick is a aside. Do we have coming up on a topic anything about song lyrics? Song lyrics? No. Okay, so I'll bring this up here. Um, so I think if you're a publisher, uh, it's what we've always said. Create unique content that isn't a commodity, meaning um, isn't something that anyone can get anywhere. What the weather is going to be tomorrow is something that anyone can uh, license from you know third parties or uh, etc. Uh, song lyrics are a really good example of this. Anybody could write down song lyrics. Now that being said, if you are a publisher that that creates song lyrics like Genius is, um, their recent lawsuit against Google does bring forth a uh, legitimate gripe that you have if you're a publisher. So if you are creating unique content that isn't a commodity, I think you're still going to be in great shape here as long as you have an audience. Now that said, if Google is actively taking your content, even if it is a commodity, now this raises a whole nother question. Are either of you guys familiar with the, the Genius lyrics? Yeah. yeah I mean, they do lyrics, but on top of that, don't they also kind of dig into the meaning behind the lyrics too, if I'm not wrong? Yeah, I've seen that. You know, I have a Spotify premium account and certain songs, the lyrics will pop up as you're listening to um, the song on Spotify. So, so you're you're actively familiar with with Genius, and yeah. So, mm -hmm. would you say that their their kind of lyric content is maybe better augmented? There's something like, I guess, different about it than just the lyrics themselves. Yeah, I think it's different because you're not just um, you know reading like a a text file on a website mm -hmm. uh, with the lyrics, but you're actually it's interactive in the sense that when you're listening to a song with you know natively within the app you are able to see the lyrics kind of go almost in like a, in a karaoke style mm -hmm. where it's going with the music itself, which um, for certain artists, you know, may be appealing or it just may pop up. So 
the thing that came out of this, Shelby, are you familiar with this story, the lawsuit? No, I'm not. So Genius several years ago accused Google of, uh, and there were several others that had done this too, of Google taking their specific content and publishing in search results. So as we were saying before, commodity content. So song lyrics, the weather, you know, um, how old was Abraham Lincoln when he was shot? Like these things are just facts. They're objective facts that, you know, Google can get anywhere and they can publish. And, you know, if you're a publisher, you're just sorry. But Google can't take content from you, right? Um, so even though I might publish the weather, um, Google can't take me publishing the weather and then publish it themselves, right? That's a that's a violation. And so what Genius did is they replaced the apostrophes in many of their lyrics, um, and they made them go in a separate direction. So they created a Morse code that said red-handed, and they were able to catch Google uh, in some instances within their search results actively using their version of the lyrics inside of search results when people would search lyrics to prove that Google is actually getting lyrics from them. So it's what Google said in the past is we license lyrics from a third party and that's how we, we publish them. So kind of fast forward to the end here. So this was a big deal because... Um, Google scraping and stealing content for publishers unattributed would be a really big deal. And so Google basically said, we get it from a third party. And then the third party came out and said, well, we use people that get the lyrics directly from the artist or they transcribe them somehow. And then they'll often use other sources to make sure that the lyrics are correct or augment them or make them better because, you know, whatever version that they have to start with isn't necessarily perfect. And so Google's like, well, see, it's our third party's fault and they're implementing measures to make sure this is the case. But apparently they they were supposed to have done this before. And Genius's point now, especially after all of this, is saying this makes our lawsuit stronger because it points out the fact that lyrics are not the commodity that even Google is saying that they are because even this third party isn't able to just get them right. It's not just out there. So Genius is saying, listen, there is something proprietary about what we do because, listen, even the people that Google's licensing it from come to us to get the lyrics. And so uh, I think it's a strong point. And so Google's saying, well, we're, wor we're working with our third party to make sure this doesn't happen anymore. But if this role was reversed, think about it. Google is going to ban a publisher and not allow them to show ads or, you know, maybe even take somebody out of search results if they're scraping content or it's not unique, right? Like if you take somebody else's content and publish it, Google will take de-index you from search results. So just by their own policy, they're violating it. But then there's this other thing. It's just copyright uh, in general. And it becomes a question of even though you didn't mean for this to happen, Google, it's still there. You're still responsible for the fact that you've published somebody else's work. Um, so yeah, I think it creates a really, really big problem for Google. But it's a roundabout way of me saying that because of this, I actually think publishers don't need to be overly concerned about the fact that Google is going to ramp up the number of no-click searches or the number of traffic um, or then uh, the amount of traffic they send to their own sources. I think they're going to probably try to keep a lot of this steady um, to avoid some of the heat. Uh, this could be a this could be a really big one for them. I think. Yeah, those are the double standards are quite real and pretty clever on Genius's behalf of doing that little trick just to catch them. You know, 
Um, the next topic I have today um, is a little bit different than our usual topics, but GQ was recently criticized for using a doctored photo showing women execs at a tech gathering. Um, so last week, GQ magazine removed a photo from its website after a BuzzFeed report came out um, that indicated that the two women appearing with 15 male tech executives had been digitally added in. Um, so apparently GQ didn't really, al- they didn't actually alter the photo and they were not informed of the alteration before publishing it. And it was later removed for not meeting the magazine's editorial standards. Hmm. Um, even though GQ didn't edit the photo, how much responsibility do you think that they hold in this matter? And what can publishers do to kind of mitigate these problems in this age of Photoshop and deep fake and other things like that? Boy, that's a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's not our normal topic, but I think it's a good one because um, I do think it's something publishers think about. I guess just at the top level it, and as it in terms of, I guess, a social social issue or question, how, how do you feel about it? I kind of have mixed feelings because obviously I'm not a fan of the fact that these women were doctored in. But on the other hand, I mean, they were present at this event. Um, and they just, I guess, didn't get a photo with everybody. To me, included. that's even weirder. It seems almost yeah. even less genuine, right? It's very disingenuous, and I think that's the part um, that gets me the most. Is just the fact that they were present, but they weren't present on that stage. So it seems very uh, forced. Yeah, it seems it seems weird because it's almost like they, they were. He- it seems like somebody thought to themselves or said to themselves, "They were here, but they weren't in that photo. That makes us look bad. Let's just." shop them in right because it 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 implies like this very intentional like direction with it and i think yeah there's something i I think just in in general right now the uh the atmosphere i I think the generational atmosphere that we have is very much people don't like that lack of authenticity i agree is that something is that something that you guys find uh i guess like do you hold it against gq do you hold like do you hold it against the event itself like, whose problem do you think that is? Um, I guess I, I mean, GQ is partially responsible because they did publish the photo on their magazine or on their website. Um, but I think more of the responsibility lies in the party who did the alteration, I suppose. Um, I think you guys are correct in that, you know, people of this generation don't like, you know, unauthentic a lot of it stems i think from the whole influencer movement and people like travel bloggers photoshopping themselves into locations that they've never been to before yeah i hadn't thought of that yeah what can you really trust and um things like that but i don't know it walks a really fine line because a lot of images are photoshopped for fun like our thumbnails you know Mm -hmm. um so It's although our thumbnails are pretty blatantly Photoshop. It's not like we, I think, I try and fool anybody. Yeah, I don't really <laughs> dress up like a hunter and carry a shotgun or wear a giant fur coat or anything like that. Right. So I think I not guess not at work at least. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think it just all lies in the the intent. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think um, it's one thing to think about as a publisher. Uh, we're coming off the heels of another Google Core update. And I think one of the things that stuck out from John Mueller, although looking at some of the data, I don't know that we necessarily see this overtly. But one of the things they mentioned is the overuse of quote unquote stock photos and things like that as a way of saying content might be outdated. 
So if you're a digital publisher, you might be saying to yourself, like, how can I create imagery or information or media on my site in general uh, that represents the content that I'm producing? I think one of the things that is probably a takeaway here is if you are going to create unique uh, media or something like that for your for your web property or uh, anything that you're publishing, it's probably really important that you you think maybe a little bit harder than you might have in the past as to uh, what you're representing and how. Where did you get this image from? Is it really representative of what I'm showing my audience? Um, even if you're just doing something simple like a how-to, if you show like the wrong version uh, of a laptop or you show the wrong uh, you know, like you mentioned a certain type of wrench and then you use a different wrench. I'm just thinking of how-to content for some reason. But yeah, I think that that screams to an audience like this isn't relevant to me or this is inauthentic or this was almost like a low level of effort. And I think that that's, what's, that's the thing that gets me about the GQ thing is it almost seems like um, like it doesn't really matter. Like or this, this media, this, this image is supposed to be a part of the story and what they've done is they've basically said, well, we're going to try to portray something, but it's not really important. People won't notice. Right. Yeah. Um, well, the next couple topics, I'm actually going to let Alan introduce. He chose them. And so I'm sure the audience will get familiar with his voice. All and- right, Alan, let's see these. Let's see your number one draft picks. Yeah. So the um, first topic that I found was that Google is testing augmented reality 3d and youtube live stream display ads and this was from media post and so google's making a push to expand augmented reality and interactive capabilities in its contents and advertising offerings Uh, while slow to incorporate immersive ads they're testing 3d and youtube live stream display ads in the dv360 its programmatic um, ad platform and so Google also announced a live stream format and display in Video 360 that allows marketers to run YouTube live stream content and display ads across screens and devices. Consumer demand for new technology is scaling faster than technical competency. About 62% of creatives see increased client demand for AR campaigns, according to Unity survey of 1,000 creative professionals analyzing the state of AR in advertising. And... With technical and financial hurdles, along with uncertainty about how AR technology is being used in campaigns, there are perceived challenges that marketers face. And despite these hurdles, hurdles, 78.4% of marketers participating in the survey have a positive outlook about the technology. And some 55.8% of those designing creatives said they were likely or very likely to consider AR campaigns within the next year, with 54.1% acknowledging they already deployed them. So interesting. Uh, I mean, the, the AR thing, I think, you know, when you look at brand marketers and people that spend a lot of money on marketing budgets, they're always looking for ways to reach an audience and also be someplace maybe where other people aren't. Um, especially in being being the first person in, in a place uh, has says something as well, like, um, if you've never seen it, if you're using, you know, VR augmented reality and you're not used to seeing ads and all of a sudden there's ads and it happens to be, you know, X company, like that sticks out to you just because you're like, oh, that's so cool. Like, or that's weird. I've never seen those ads here before. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's, there is that kind of like, uh, you beat the ad blindness by being there early if you're a marketer. Um, as for publishers that are, you know, considering, 
you know, how do I leverage these technologies? I think it's still really hard to say because um, it, it's, if you're not traditionally in the video space or this is like a technology that you're overly familiar with or this is like a new um, realm that you can get into. So if you're not like a major publisher that has the resources to maybe start this or it's not something that's like in your wheelhouse, it's going to be really hard to be on the front end of this. Um, I do think that one of the things that they've talked about a lot here recently is like these new immersive or 3D ads and display ads or live ads and things like that. I personally, and this again, it's subjective opinion, hate that stuff. The New York Times has it. Um, I had a I had a conversation with a software uh, company CEO the other day, and uh, we basically uh, we dis- agreed to disagree. He thought they were cool, and I hate I hate those types of ads. Um, and so that's just that's the world of advertising in general. So I think if you're a digital publisher, you still have to just be agnostic about ad types and things like that. I think that's where personalization really has a future in publishing. So um, as for AR and augmented reality, uh, are you guys? Are you, I think Shelby, maybe we've talked before. Have you? Are you guys familiar with the the Gartner hype cycle? Mm-hmm. Are you talking about like the highs and the troughs and the yeah, yeah. Like okay, the trough, yeah, trough of dis- disillusionment mm-hmm. and. Uh, the uh, height of uh, uh, inflated expectations and things like that. I, I feel like augmented reality and VR in that trough of disillusionment right now. Like for a while, it was like, this is going to be the next big thing. We're all going to live in VR. And now it's like, is it even going to be a thing? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that even in my advertising classes, we would be, you know, we would talk about, you know, is this the future uh, in terms of are we going to be seeing more of it? And I think if I were in the shoes of a marketer for a big brand, um, like you're saying, you can have that effect of being the first in being in a space and um, your customer is saying, wow, you know, that's really cool. They were the first to do that. But I also think it's an, it's kind of important if you were in a marketer's shoes to um, be kind of cognizant of what your brand is as a whole and um, if, if it even fits for you in the first place. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it, different industries and products lend itself more to AR and VR uh, than others. Um, You know, you've got the like sunglass brands where you can try on different frames um, on your face. Yeah. Or furniture. A lot of times you can see what this couch would look like in your room. Um, But if it does get more popular, how do you think are publishers going to be keen to kind of accept this growth and want these type of ads on their websites? Do you think it'll kind of detract away from the content that's on the website since they are so interactive? Or like you said, do publishers just have to stay agnostic to the different types? I think when you're talking about ad types, publishers need to stay agnostic. When you talk about participating in some degree to AR augmented reality, I think we need like examples of exactly how. But I I think if nothing else, if it does rise to popularity, it, it creates content opportunities. So even if you're not going to participate directly, I think that there are opportunities for pretty much every niche or category of content that's out there where uh, augmented reality or VR is relevant to you. So if you're into travel, right, there's probably going to be a lot of associated travel stuff. And then it gives you this whole realm of like new content and things to talk about. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it'll be relevant to some degree if it catches on the way that um, many think it will. Um, And then the last topic is from Search Engine Land, and it's about leaning into SEO as Google shifts from Search Engine to Portal. And this was from a a keynote speech at SMX Advance this month, 
Uh, Jessica Bowman, the CEO of SEO in-house and search engine land editor at large, spoke on how Google is shifting from search engine to portal. And um, she spoke on that, you know, your writers, copywriters, social media managers or anything in between need to be creating content that is comprehensive and authoritative enough to compete for organic visibility. Um, some of her other advice was to master schema and JavaScript for SEO. You know, understanding and correctly implementing schema on your site can help crawlers make sense of your content and increase the odds that it gets displayed as a featured snippet. And featured snippets and other rich results illustrate the double-edged sword nature of Google's portal-like interface. They increase your content's visibility, and yet users may not click through to your site because the information they need has already been presented to them. And beginning on July 1st, all new sites will be indexed using Google's mobile-first indexing, with older sites getting monitored and evaluated for mobile-first indexing readiness. And since the majority of searches now happen on mobile, brands may need to closely examine the mobile uh, SERP. So what are your thoughts on her advice, Tyler? Well, I think there's no debate anymore about whether or not you should try to compete for rich snippets in search results um, because one of the things that's really obvious, it's like it's like anything else um, when there's a supply and demand is if you don't do it, somebody else will. So if you're like, guess what, Google? On principle, I'm not going. I'm going to specifically try not to do um, anything that would allow you to display my content in rich results, um, in search results. And you can sit there with your principles as other sites take all the organic traffic that you could be getting. But there's many, many examples of this, and I think um, you should be trying to do everything you can to get. Uh, rich results. But I think the advice to create comprehensive, authoritative content, yeah, that's good. But I think the biggest thing is is you want to get out of the business of informational, commoditized content. So if you've made a living um, by creating content that is purely content that anyone with the ability to write well and do Google searches on their own or just look up information uh, can produce, then that business model is not going to scale. Uh, Google, other publishers, like it doesn't matter if it's Google or not. Anybody could, could come in and do it. Anybody, gasoline is a commodity. If it's $4 in one place and $3 in another place, the $3 uh, gasoline company is going to put the $4 one out of business. And it's the same for content. And so I think one of the things you want to think about is how do you continue to create content that is unique, specific to your audience? And sometimes, you know, like uh, you guys watch the show Shark Tank? Yes. Yeah. So if anybody uh, watches that show, one of the things that always comes comes up is they always will ask, like, well, do you have a patent? And do you guys know why they ask if they have a patent? Yeah, because it, if you have a patent for something, it's going to um, potentially eliminate competition within that a uh, little niche or whatever they're trying to create. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, like, it's it's the it's the simple capacity of somebody can't basically do the exact same thing, right? And one of the things that drives me crazy sometimes in that show, somebody will have a really great business, and they'll say, well, you don't have a patent, or anybody could do this. And it's like, yeah, anybody could, but there's, there's value in a brand. There's value in having done something. There's value in having it created. So me, while you may be a publisher that has created unique content that – anybody could theoretically create like you are still you you still have your audience like um no one else has created that content and so it's it's okay to to produce content that anyone could theoretically produce but you want to make sure that it's unique uh has enough perspective or there's something 
uh, fun enough about it or um, I guess streamline. I don't know. It really depends on the example. There needs to be something about your content that is different from from others. And, um, you know, uh, five years ago, I mean, my classic favorite example of the YouTube show Hot Ones where they uh, celebrities eat hot hot wings and meanwhile someone asked some questions like there's nothing there's nothing proprietary about that right now if somebody did it you'd call them a ripoff of hot ones you know like they've created something unique it's a fun idea um it's not possible for everybody but i do think that there's a way for you to say okay i'm gonna do something different here um but yeah i i think all that material that she said was good advice right So I think that concludes our podcast today, unless you have anything new on your side, Tyler. I don't. Uh, I'm sad to see you go here for the short term, Shelby, but uh, I know you're going to have a really fun time doing all the cool things that you do, and you'll probably bring back all kinds of new stories. And who knows, by that time, like maybe Google will have been disrupted, and we will all be using Bing as a search engine. (laughs) Um, I'd say let's hope not, but... I, I don't I don't know. It's like Microsoft or Google. Yeah, that'd Take be it'd be waking it'd be like waking up from a fever dream or something. <laughs> <laughs> We're all using Bing. Um, okay. Well, if you have any questions or some topics that you want us to cover, oh, I usually say you can email me at S King, but but don't do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can. It's just going to be a while before you hear those topics on the podcast. Right. So um, you can email Alan at alongstreet at ezoic.com. Or you can always tweet us at ezoic or send us a message in on SoundCloud or whatever platform you're listening on. But um, I think that's all. That's it. Thank you guys for joining us on another episode of The Publisher Lab.